Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Very well. Great stuff. And who have we got on the show today? So today, Peter, we're going indoors on this uh, chilly December day. Oh, that's nice. Cool. (laughs) And we're going to meet uh, Tony LeBritton. He's uh, a self-confessed houseplant addict, plant propagator, and he's a bit of a social media celebrity. Wow. Okay. And he uh, famously turned his lounge into a jungle a few years ago, and uh, he's become a star on good old... Gardener's World on BBC Two. Yep. And uh, earlier this year, and I think you went over there, Peter, he opened a shop. Yes, he's got a lovely shop in Northampton. Really nice environment, well set out, and a huge range of plants. Fantastic. Really nice, well looked after mm. shop there. It's yeah. well worth a visit. So, Not Another Jungle is the name of the shop. Yep, and bang in the centre of Northampton. Perfect. So uh, let's have our chat with, with Tony. Hello, Tony, and welcome to Dig It. Where do we find you today? Right now, I am at the start of a, what should be a day off, but I'm just sitting in my kitchen, which is a real luxury. I've actually still got my dressing gown on, which does not <laughs> usually happen. <laughs> um, as, as you know, things have been a little, uh, a little crazy the last, last year or two for me. Um, but today, I'm, I've got a day out of the shop. And I'm actually delivering um, wholesale orders on my day off to different garden centres. So, excellent. Well, not quite a full day off then, but at least you you got a re- <laughs> early a, a relaxed start. Exactly. Um, so, in the world of houseplants, Tony, perhaps we can maybe set, sort of set the scene for our listeners and perhaps tell us a little about about your journey into the world of growing indoor plants. Yeah, so I mean, my my whole life has been surrounded by plants. My both my grandparents were were great growers, um, not professional growers, but just fantastic at home growers. Of uh, my nana did amazing displays in her garden, um, growing everything from seed, and then my granddad had the most incredible, you know, um, regimented allotment that was. Um, he just grew the most perfect perfect fruit and vegetables that didn't have a mark on them there wasn't a weed in sight very different to how i got them now um but actually my 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 journey mainly started with just plants you know i I love plants i love gardening and for me indoor plants are just an extension to the garden it means you can garden all year round and you can garden no matter what the weather um and you don't even have to wrap up for it so i started with indoor plants, again, as a child, my, my nana had a really lovely selection on the on the windowsill of the utility room, which was always uh, really hot and steamy because where all the laundry got got done. Um, and it's something I remember really fondly. And um, and and I was into sort of propagating. I think I was just really fascinated with propagating from a from a really young age. Um, before I could even walk, I was I was sort of pricking pricking plants out. My nana used to use her take her belt off and uh, put a put a chair next to the kitchen bench and and put the belt around my back and then around the back of the chair and strap me standing up so I could fiddle in the soil when she was working. Before I could even walk, and I and I. I don't know whether I remember it because you're not supposed to remember things from that long ago, but I feel like I remember it. I feel like I, I can really remember that time, but um, that's how I that's how I initially got into it, and um, and then throughout my life I've had various collections. My first 
big collection was orchids, um, mainly Phalaenopsis orchids, but species versions of the ones you see in, in garden centers. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it exploded when I moved to the tropics. I moved out to Southeast Asia. And then when I came home, I think I just needed to recreate that sort of environment at home and uh, just became more and more fascinated with, with particularly with aroids. And, um, and from there, things just, well, completely exploded. <laughs> and, uh, it was all downhill. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> so uh, is it true that you've actually got a, you've built a greenhouse inside your house? So that was in my last last place. So what I did was I moved from a um, from a cottage in the Cotswolds with a big garden. So I satisfied my gardener needs in the garden. I had a few houseplants, but nothing too much. And then I couldn't. I had to move out of there, and I couldn't find anywhere that I wanted to live. So I ended up thinking it was a great idea to move into a um, city centre apartment in Cheltenham. Which, I mean, I don't know what was what was going on with me because I don't <laughs> like people, and I don't like being surrounded by noise. But anyways, I moved in this place, and it had a glass ceiling, and I thought, ah, I can create a garden inside here. And because I had a lot more rare tropical plants, I then sacrificed my spare bedroom and put a greenhouse inside it. <laughs> <laughs> like a full size, not a little greenhouse, a full size entire room greenhouse that was wow. heated, humidity controlled, artificial lighting, everything. Um, and that's when the story got picked up and my passion got picked up by press and mm-hmm. sort of things went a little, little crazy. But since then, I've moved um, to Northamptonshire. I'm now lucky enough to have a, a big garden. I have a tropical greenhouse outside in my garage. And then I obviously have the plants in the house, and then I have two propagating rooms in the house that are just dedicated to to, to making more plants. Excellent. So, if you're growing sort of all your plants inside in these you know, greenhouses, are you have uh, you're talking about artificial light. What sort of lighting are you using? Yeah, so I use LED panel lights. Um, so actually, for it was it was definitely a concern when the when the prices of electricity started rising. Um, but they, they actually use minimal, minimal. They use, I think, the lights use about six p a day, something like that. They're okay. really, really efficient. Um, obviously, I have quite a few of them, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I basically have have uh, have racks, and then I have tubular lights on each of the racks, and then mm-hmm. trays of plants beneath them. Okay, so a bit like the vertical farms that you see. Is it something like that? You're yeah, setting? exactly. It's, 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 it's exactly like that. It is. And, and I'm really lucky that there's two parts of the house where um, the rooms that I use, one is the laundry room. So I only recently, when I was writing my book, I sort of, when I was writing how I grew, I'm growing in, a, in, my, in my laundry room that's always warm and steamy. And I'm like, I've just recreated my childhood right here. <laughs> this is, this is not, I've sort of recreated my, my memories of growing plants from when I was younger. Um, but it means I don't have to heat that room. And then the other place in the house is where the hot water is stored before it's pumped around the house. So that room is always toasty and warm. So it's great because I don't have to heat them. I can mm-hmm. just use the yeah. power heat and then add lights in and things absolutely thrive. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip for uh, for our listeners, isn't it? If they've got a, a room which uh, has got heating close by, you know, which is like a boiler room, 
maybe that's a good opportunity to uh, to use well, that for growing up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, off you go. Yeah, yeah. Tony, you said uh, obviously your inspiration certainly with, with your, your grandparents, but uh, who else has been inspiring to you in your your journey on on gardening and on on, on house plants? Yeah, I was I was thinking about this question. Um, I think all of my inspiration was was probably from, again, outdoor gardeners. So I used to love to watch gardening on TV as being a kid. And the real treat was to, you know, a Friday night, my granddad would be out down the pub and me and my nana would sit and I'd sit down at her feet on the floor and we'd, you know, make sure we had our cup of tea and our biscuits and then we'd watch Gardener's World. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and when I moved away, I moved away from home at 17 and we'd both watch Gardener's World at the same time and straight after we'd call each other and talk about what went on. So definitely, you know, all presenters have gone this world and current ones, Monty Don was a huge inspiration. But, the, you know, the late, great Jeff Hamilton, just mm-hmm. unbelievable um, and really engaging. I don't think it was his voice that just engaged me. Um, and then more modern, you know, more modern inspirations or just people I come across on social media. Social media is just the most phenomenal place to just see a whole primordial soup of people with different tastes and different growing techniques um and and but a lot of my growing knowledge now comes from commercial professional growers and from um people who run botanic gardens that's where you find some seriously good knowledge along with um real seasoned old old school growers as well yeah, yeah, those those are the best people, aren't they? And they, they've obviously gone gone through the mill. They've gone their their apprenticeships, and they've uh, le- learned the ropes. And yes, yeah, certainly you get an awful lot of background from from talking to them. Mm. And yeah, exactly. So no, we were talking earlier about growing plants in your spare room, in the, the laundry cupboard, and um, places like that around the house, which is a great use of the properties of the room have you got any philosophies about choosing house plants for the home and are there any golden rules we should be thinking about and sticking to there really are um especially now actually i think people are becoming people are becoming a little bit more aware of what house plants are and maybe what they need yeah. Um, and people really do want to succeed at houseplants. You know, there's a reason you're buying a plant. You're buying it because you like the look of it and you want it to do something in your home, whether that is you maybe want it to make you feel better or it could literally just be for aesthetics. And there's nothing aesthetically less pleasing than a dying plant in the corner. So, um, I, you know, customers that come in my store, I really advise not to focus on what a plant looks like. You really shouldn't just be choosing a plant because you like the look of it. You should be looking at the situation you want to grow it in and how much light you get there. That is the number one thing is how much light do you get in that spot? And then from there, I'll ask, where's it going? Is it going to be hanging? Is it going to be on the floor? How much space has it got to grow into? And then you can choose a plant that is already going to be miles in front of something you would have just picked up because it's got every possibility of surviving because it's getting the right amount of light in that spot. And that then takes off so much pressure. If the plant is already healthy and it's got enough light, the only other thing you've really got to be responsible for is the watering. And that is easy when you know how. (laughs) Tony, um, 
Obviously, we're seeing a lot of new people buying houseplants. I mean, over the last sort of five years, I mean, the sales at, at the Garden Centre of Houseplants have, have really boomed. Um, what about some sort of basic tips on um, those people who are buying on the watering aspect? I mean, is there, a, again, we talk about golden rules. Does it make you know, a real difference whether you use rainwater or tap water? Uh, what, what are your views on that? So I use I use tap water on all my plants. Um, the only exception to that for me are carnivorous plants, which I don't have a lot of. Um, but tap water, even in Northamptonshire, which is I think some of the some of the hardest water in the UK, mm. um, my plants my plants thrive. They're absolutely fine. And for the for the effort I'd have to go through and the volume that I'd have to have to to water all my plants. It's just not worth the very minimal, if any, difference in the growth. Um, the only one thing is that if you um, spray your plants or as in the greenhouse, I hose down the greenhouse, you do get mineral deposits building up because I'm wetting it twice a day and then it's drying out very quickly. Um, so you do get mineral deposits um, building up. But when it comes to root root growth, leaf growth, anything like that, I've, I've not seen any difference. And one one um, myth that's around is a plant's hatred of, of chlorine. Um, people leave leaf water, or, or uh, so people leave water for chlorine to evaporate, which doesn't really happen. Um, and actually, one of the key components that a plant needs, not 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 once, but needs, um, is chlorine. They need it to grow. So it's not a bad thing. And in the levels in the UK. Um, they're not damaging to plants at all. And then the other thing people do is if they have hard water, they'll boil their water to make it soft, supposedly. Yeah. But actually, all you're doing is evaporating the water and concentrating the minerals in it. So you're actually making it worse. Mm. So tap water, yeah. just just tap water all the way. Well, I suppose the other thing, if you've got nice hard water like we have in Northamptonshire and Buckinghamshire, it's full of limestone, which is calcium, isn't calcium. it? And you know, presumably that's one of the trace elements you see in sure. fertilisers and things like that. Yeah, so for some plants, absolutely. I mean, it's not accessible to the form it's in. It's not fully accessible to plants. But really interestingly, so on my windowsill downstairs, you may have seen this online, I have a, a, a sandwich bag on the windowsill and it contains the rarest plant in my collection, which is a Corybas cordosus. It's an orchid um, from Peninsula, Malaysia, and it's thought extinct in the wild. And it is, um, it's very elusive. It was, it was found once in the wild. It was never described. It's never been described by science. It's totally undocumented, unknown to science. And I have one growing on my windowsill, and it does well. Q have had them before from my friend who is a botanist who who grows them, and Q have killed them. But there's one in a sandwich bag living its best life on my windowsill. Flowered twice this year and it's oh, wow. multiplying. Wow. And the interesting thing about its habitat is that it grows on limestone cliffs. So the oh. water that I have right here in Northamptonshire could be really healthy. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's doing so well. Isn't, isn't it? it crazy? Yeah. That's brilliant. Is, yeah. So there really is something about um, keeping plants in the right environment to get them to grow well then. <laughs> Northamptonshire is best for all the rare the, orchids. <laughs> I know, and the, and, the, and the sandwich bag technique is borrowed from my friend Rokia, who's the, the um, botanist at Hortus Leiden. 
the botanic garden in in the Netherlands. Yep. Um, if if you can ever visit there, it's just mm. it's mind blowing, and his knowledge is is unbelievable. Um, but he uses sandwich these these big sort of sandwich bags for a lot of plants, and they just create the perfect stable mm. environment, and they're so simple. Yeah. And people have tried, you know, you know um, other botanic gardens have tried recreating this orchid's natural habitat using all these sort of state-of-the-art heaters and humidity things. Well, they all kill them. But put it in a sandwich bag on a windowsill in Northampton, <laughs> and it's fine. <laughs> there you go. It's best. We're talking, you're talking about misting there in the greenhouse. What about misting to improve the humidity uh, around our plants? I mean, obviously, we've got terrariums and bottle gardens, which obviously have their own natural sort of bioclimate. Um, what about that for our own houseplants indoors? What's your, what's your feelings on the, the misting process? So misting is another myth that I just love to dispel. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you enjoy misting your plants, carry on. I know some people think it, it's... Uh, it's quite a relaxing thing to do, right? You're going around and misting your plants. But I think part of that is you think you're doing good, so it makes you feel good. Um, but in fact, you're not. If, you're, if your aim is to increase humidity, misting will not do that. It's a drop in the ocean when it comes to the, the whole environment in your house. You know, Once you've misted, um, about six seconds later, the humidity is back to the regular home humidity because the, the water just dissipates so quickly. Um, and a drawback of misting, um, it has more negatives than positives. So you're not increasing the humidity. So what are you doing it for? And the, the negatives of it is that the water sitting on the leaves, especially in a cool home, which most homes are, um, just is a perfect environment for fungus to take hold. So um, misting can can increase the likelihood of getting fungus and the, the water moving from one plant to another and dropping on it can spread that fungus or even spread pests and disease as well. So I don't mist any of my plants, but I do spray them occasionally when I wipe the leaves down, but then you're drying them off very quickly. Now in the greenhouse, it's a little bit different. And it's also then different, like you say, if you're growing in terrariums or an enclosed environment. Of course, then if you mist, it's enclosed, it's going to raise the humidity for quite a while. So in an enclosed environment, it works. And in the greenhouse, a lot of the time during the summer, I'm hosing it down to cool it down. But the greenhouse is so packed with plants. It's got a deep gravel floor. I've got gravel benches that hold water. So the spraying in there, really increases humidity for a long period of time. But in a home environment, it doesn't work. Mm, that's, that's interesting. So, I mean, people sometimes put their plants on, on uh, sources with uh, pebbles or uh, horteg, they like aggregating. Yeah. So that would be a better process to keep the, the plant moist? Um, or, is, or is that not such a, a good way of increasing humidity? It's sort of, it's, that sort of doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a small room with a lot of gravel, like gravel saucers, gravel, you need to have a lot of it to make any difference. And then grouping the plants together, which with or without the gravel does work to help increase humidity and create a little microclimate. Mm-hmm. But if you have if you have a fairly large area of gravel saucers or maybe like an entire tray of it and then it's packed with plants, you are going to create a very small microclimate there. Um, not a huge amount of difference. My preference in the house is to not increase humidity 
for the reason that when you're not there, so when you go on holiday for a couple of weeks or whatever, unless you've got someone to be, you know, filling up your gravel trays or continue missing, whatever you're doing, then your plants are going to shock because they're used to getting this particular humidity. And then when you're away, they're going to stress. And, and any leaves that are, that are created in, a, in one humidity, a high humidity, can never adapt fully to live in a lower humidity. So your plants are probably already going to be stressed when you're going on holiday because your watering schedule changes or maybe they don't even get watered at all. So then to then drop the humidity from what they're usually used to, um, it, it, it just adds unnecessary stress. I think for me, it's keep things really simple. If there's a job that I don't need to do, trust me, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, humidity, so I try and increase humidity in the home for me is a no-go. I just adapt my plants to living in whatever home environment I have. And they, they, they do really well. They end up really tough. And, um, you know, anything in, the, in my house, you have to, you have to thrive for, you just get left behind. <laughs> that's fascinating thank you for that yeah and uh, just thinking about the not doing too many jobs um cleaning and polishing houseplant leaves now i've got a few orchids in my house that every now and again i just get some ro water or some sort of deionized water and a damp cloth and just polish the leaves with yeah. that have you got any tips on sort of how to clean i mean you must have hundreds of house plants you're having to clean leaves of how do you get around the job <laughs> so it's usually god i'm so brutal with the plants usually i take them out in the garden and just jet wash them down right <laughs> with the like hose a pipe not a, not a jet wash yeah not a jet wash gonna say they must fairly, be really tough fairly if... aggressive uh, yeah <laughs> i do put the hose pipe on a fairly aggressive setting to just sort of blast off anything um so i usually take them in the garden give them a blast off um and then i'll you know give them a good shake the key is to get them to dry off nice and quickly um so you're not increasing the likelihood of funguses and what have you and then I follow that with just wiping them down with a damp microfiber cloth. Um, if I don't have the time to take them out, I will just use a damp microfiber cloth, wipe over the leaves just with water. Um, sometimes a very, very, very diluted fertilizer um, okay. because that does work. That works really well. Um, but removing, you know, things built up on leaves, you know, grease from houses, um, dust, dirt, anything, even, you know, pests. And... The, the best way to do that is just to wipe your leaves, especially now that the light levels are dropping. If you haven't already, get around, wipe your plant's leaves just so they can absorb a little bit more light and they can photosynthesize a little bit more efficiently. Um, it's, you know, if, if you can remember to do it and you have the time and you want to do it each time you water, that would be fantastic. But, you know, let's, let's, let's get real. Most people don't have that, don't have that time. Um, just do it when when you can, but it really does help. Mm. That's good to know. Yeah. So Tony, we we have a bit of a, um, a spider plant debate in the office uh, at the garden centre. Um, we are very divided into two camps: some who can grow them to absolute perfection, and those um, there's a number of them in, in the office just have constant issues. Either the the the, uh, the leaves go brown at the edges, the, the the failing new plants just don't propagate, or the plants just simply die. Um, 
Now I was I remember growing I remember growing spider plants at school and I, I always seem to grow them okay. Um what yeah. is there is there such a, a secret of success with, with good old spider plants? I mean they want to survive. They are they are real tough warriors of plants. That's why they're such a popular house plant and have been from the seventies, you know, and, and, and before mm-hmm. and um and still are now. I mean they're not a trendy plant, but I would like to see them coming back and, and I'm I'm thinking about trying to create something really spectacular you know a really huge planter of them tumbling down to try and inspire people to get back into them because i think they're great um the key and i think the reason more schools do well with them um is that schools tend to have fairly big windows um and also the plants would be left alone for a long time and just you know not overwatered, which is probably the, the the main thing that happens this it, it, i think it's the same advice i'd give for, for for any plant is um leave it alone if it looks bad don't think the way to fix that is to water it more i think that's what people tend to <laughs> yes, do yes. they go oh there's a yellow leaf must need some water um <laughs> yeah. just the, the reaction of a lot of people is just to give more water even if the plant is already wet so brown tips tend to either be over or under watering usually over though um and making sure it gets enough light because they are sold as low light plants um but low light to a lot of people sounds like no light um and they tend to just put it somewhere that just does not have enough light if you put a spider plant in enough light and don't overwater it it's going to grow it just is and if you are doing that and the plant isn't there's a problem with the plants. Um, just like anything, some plants are just not good examples. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they've got bad genetics or they're just, they're a bit sickly. And actually, if, if you're giving it enough light and it's still not thriving, then just replace it. Get a new one. Mm. And if you've got a good one that you are you are actually managing to grow and it's uh, sending out the little um, babies off, the, what do you call them, tendrils, I suppose? Or? Uh, sort of runners, aren't they? Yeah, runners, plant, plant, yeah, yeah, runners. I, I guess. Yeah. What's the best way to get them to root? Is it chop them off and stick them in a pot or do you... I mean, you can leave them attached, like you would with strawberries. You can leave them attached and then just um, pin the stolons, uh, the little bumps with the leaves on, into um, into some compost. But quite honestly, they grow so readily. You don't need to faff around with that. Just chop them off, stick them around the edge, put loads in a pot, stick them around the edge of a pot in some nice free-draining compost mix. For cuttings, I tend to use um, a seed compost, a peat-free seed compost, and mix it with about 50% horticultural grit, um, just like you do in the garden, really. Um, and that works really, really well. Um, there's, you don't need anything fancy for, for spider plants, for sure. They're just, they, they really are tough, tough plants. Excellent. Well, thanks for your tips on that. <laughs> I think we'll take that back to the office. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there's going to be a few new uh, spider plants being purchased in the next uh, few weeks, Tony. So that's, that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> You need a spider spider plant challenge. We do, yes. It's been set uh, today on Dig It. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, you know, certainly around this time of year, you often in certain unscrupulous retailers see, say, little conifers <laughs> that have been sprayed with white foam and then um, tinsel and all sorts yeah. over them. But, um, obviously, the, the, that's a really extreme case of just... <laughs> 
selling a, effectively a, a plant that's going to die. Um, are there any yeah. other plants that we should possibly avoid that you've seen going through the shops that are just going to be really, really hard to keep and grow? I mean, obviously, you've got a very rare yeah. orchid that most people, again, would struggle to grow. Are there any, any other common, yeah. sort of more common plants that you've seen that you think mm. there's a lot i mean there are a lot of them actually um a lot so let, let's go back first to the decorated plants because that's a real passion of mine a passion of of hatred <laughs> of mine. Um, and 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 recently with it coming up to christmas my wonderful friends in the netherlands are, have set it um, upon themselves to cause me as much pain as possible. <laughs> and they're, they're literally taking videos of themselves with all of these trays of um, coloured dye, glittered succulents, oh, no. and sending them to me. Um, please avoid those things. You, they, they can't breathe. They're suffoc. They're basically suffocating and already dying very, very slowly. The only reason to buy one of those is to rescue it, wash it off, and try it. But Quite honestly, I wouldn't buy it, even buy it to rescue it, because if people just stop buying it, there'll not be a market for it, and hopefully that'll trickle down into the Netherlands and they'll just stop doing it. I mean, I've given feedback to all the growers that I work with that, you know, just just change this, offer something different, and, and because it's we just a waste, isn't it? It's a not... culture of growing plants to as you know the. If people realize that a lot of these succulents are maybe first grown in Portugal and then they're shipped to the Netherlands and then they're in heated greenhouses with artificial light um, and then they're shipped to the UK to be sold, the, the environmental impact of that is huge, mm-hmm. absolutely huge. I mean, separate from that, just because I know the figure, um, a Phalaenopsis orchid, a two, it, it, I think two cubic meters of gas just to produce one one Phalaenopsis orchid. It's unbelievable. Um, and, and, and then these plants are thrown out. I, I wouldn't mind if this plant was then kept for years and grown, but the, the plants with glitter on are just seen as, as an accessory, like a napkin or something, and then chucked yeah. out when you're finished with it. Yeah. It's a novelty, um, isn't it? It's a novelty, and so so let's just classify anything novelty as a as a as as just a stay away from. If you see anything with a hat on and eyes poked into it, <laughs> avoid. <please> don't buy it. <laughs> have you seen them? The little googly eyes. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Cat dying. Yeah, I have yeah. seen them. Um, so those those will die because they've had a needle pushed through them. Um, and then on the back of that cacti with those beautiful bright colored flowers that are not real. So they're just pinned into the cactus. So they'll get an infection and die very slowly as well. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then what else would I avoid? I'd avoid, I usually avoid things like the pineapples. You know, you see the pine, the little miniature pineapples because they'll survive for a while, but the pineapple is going to die and then a pineapple plant in a regular home, unless you've got a really bright conservatory or orangery, it's just not going to do well. Okay. Um, there's a lot. There are a lot of houseplants out there that are sold for marketing purposes um, yep. because they'll grab a, a sort of everyday consumer's eye, they'll buy it and then it'll die and then they'll buy another one. Lovely. Um, Tony, obviously trends in houseplants have certainly changed over the years. I mean, back in the, the 70s and early 80s, I, I worked over at Rochford's, the, the famous houseplant nursery down in, 
in Hertfordshire. And then we were selling Monstera, uh, Ficus Robusta, the rubber plant, Crassula, the money plant, lots of flowering begonias, African violets, cinerarias. Um, today we've got far more foliage varieties. Um, Tony, do you see any trends in in the resurgence of some of these old favourites, um, maybe in the future? I mean, I mean, already the Monstera, well, what's really lovely is that the Monstera in the 70s, which I think has just always been a, a classic houseplant, it stayed from the 70s right through, mm. and it's obviously just exploded again in recent years. But the nice thing that in the 70s, the Monstera were the large form Monstera deliciosa, so they ended up with these huge leaves with, you know, masses of, of holes and fenestrations in them. And then when Monstera first started to have resurgence in the UK, um, and in fact worldwide, most of the plants sold were the small form. So much smaller leaves, they do get holes, but they stay much smaller. But now, um, the large form is now is pretty much all that's being sold. So then people can grow these big specimen plants again that you had in the 70s. Um, and I'm having people, you know, come in the shop who have had one in the 70s and they had to give it up because they moved or because it got too big. Yeah. And now they, they, they've regrown it. Um, and, and these big foliage plants are just a massive trend. I mean, I think they're here to stay. Um, and I think a couple of reasons for that is one, social media, aesthetics. Aesthetically, big leafy green plants look great, look great on on Instagram, but also just look really great in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also seen as trendy because they are in magazines and you see celebrities in the backgrounds of their homes with these big plants. But then interestingly, when, when you look at the benefits of plants to people, it's the big leafy plants that cause the most calming effect on people. Mm-hmm. So if you have those around you maybe people don't even realize that when they're buying it but naturally we're just drawn to them you want to touch the leaves you want to um you want to be surrounded by them because they do without you even knowing they're lowering your heart rate and they're giving you a sense of calm so i think that you know those those reasons together is why it's um why that why they're so popular and then a lot of them are obviously quite easy to care for Mm. And and just thinking about sort of big leafy plants, Tony, there's been a big sort of drive towards more variegated and sort of whiter colours of variegation in the last few years as well, hasn't there? What what do you think about that? So I'm a big fan of variegation. I love variegation. I collect particularly variegated plants. Um, Mostly chimeric variegation, which are basically random genetic mutations, which are fairly unstable in plants. And I think that's why I'm drawn to them is because they're, they're fairly rare. Um, people are getting a bit more adventurous and, and variegation started with, you know, um, collectors or people who were really into the plants. There's, there's always been variegated plants around, of course, but it became, you know, very much under the spotlight over the last few years. And, um, and obviously with anything, any trend, it tends to start in a sort of specialist area and it'll grow and it'll trickle and it'll move out. And thanks to social media, that's happened fairly quickly. And now variegation is becoming really mainstream and what a lot of people are trying to get a hold of. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited by that because it means people are thinking a little bit more outside the box. They're open to different things. And I hope that leads on to not only leafy plants, but just in general, looking at maybe 
rarer plants, more unusual plants, flowering plants. I'd love to see a resurgence of flowering plants because they're so, so underrated um, and not seen as cool. And unfortunately, we do live in a world where um, a lot of people want to do things because they're cool. Um, so if we can make flowering plants cool, just like variegated plants have become cool, and more people want them, oh, and yeah. more people learn to appreciate them. And even when that sort of trend dissipates, you'll still be left with a lot more people who appreciate them, who love them, and who want to grow them. And I'd really love to see more flowering plants. But um, with regard to variegation, um, you know, some of my favorite plants in my collection, some of the most famous plants in my collection that ended up in newspapers all over the world are variegated. Um, but I'm not a... I'm not a fan of something just because it's variegated. A lot of different types of variegation, different patterns, different habits, different colors of variegation. And some of them I just don't like. I'm quite selective on the, on the ones that I like. And it tends to be things with very clean sectoral variegation rather than sort of muddy, which can sometimes just look a little diseased. Mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> good stuff and thinking about the, the variegation um, Monstera Thai constellation obviously is one of those sort of mon- well it's a Monstera which is certainly catching the headlines I think also because it's it's seen over the year or the last few years to obviously uh, generate extortionate prices um, I mean do, do you think plant prices are being pressurised simply by demand or or is it a little bit more involved in that, maybe the growing side things? Yeah, so this so Thai Constellation is a, a really interesting one. There are several people claiming to be um, the root of this plant or, or to have had the first plant. Every, every one of these plants is, is tissue cultured. Right. Um, so grown, grown in a lab. Um, now, no one really knows where it, it came from. Although the name now suggests that it comes from a lab in Thailand. There is a lab in Thailand that claimed that they created this plant. How they created it, we have no idea. Was it just a random mutation of a seed-grown plant or a tissue-cultured plant, which does happen? Or was it done with chemicals initially to make mutations happen? And, or you, know, you can use... Um, radioactivity to, to, to change things in, in vitro and then you end up with mutations and sometimes those mutations end up with variegation. But whatever it is, we have it and it is a hugely popular plant. Um, the pattern, like its name suggests, is flecked right across the leaf. And the great thing about it is that it's a fully stable variegation so it's not going to revert back to a green plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of them are tissue cultured um, and because of that at one point the, the, the numbers were, were very very limited and then probably being limited on purpose to keep prices high and to drive, drive demand up um, it, you know we, we forget that these plants are products they're, they're, they're a product for growers um, and, and as such they, they market them just like any other product um, and one of those things is to is to um, is to obviously create a lot of it, and maybe just allow a little bit out at a time to keep that sort of need and want for the product. Now it was you'd be paying several thousand pounds for the plant a couple of years ago, if I, even a very small plant. And where I'm sitting right now in the kitchen, I have a huge 
one which has leaves about four foot across and it's spectacular wow. um <laughs> but now so i've been I, I have some plants that i tissue cultured myself um so i have some very small ones which you can pick up for sort of 50 pounds which is still a lot of money for a very small plant and the large ones will be two three four five hundred pounds so it's still a very expensive plant but it's definitely dropped from the dizzying heights that it, that it once was yeah, so it's a case of supply and demand, I suppose, like any any product out there, isn't it? But and and the social media certainly has, has pushed it, hasn't it, as well? Yeah, it's it's supply, demand, and good marketing. Mm. That's what it is. Um, but you know, I had a um, so you might know it in the garden centre as a mini monstera. It's a Raphidophora tetrasperma, um, and I had a variegated one. Um, so it, it it ended up in the press a couple of years ago because it was fetching twelve thousand pounds a node. Um, and I was selling it around the world to different growers. Some people just wanted to have it in their collection and it will never be seen again because they're not on social media. They just want to have this rare plant. And other people like me um, buy them as investments and then they'll propagate them, make their money back, and then make some profit on it and invest that into more plants. Yeah. Um, and now from that those sort of dizzying heights, you can, you can pick up a plant now for around three to five hundred pounds for a small established plant and over the next year or two or three the prices will come down and eventually they'll start trickling into garden centers and then it will likely because it's a just beautiful plant it will likely in the future in five ten years time become as common in a in a, in a, a garden center as a regular monstera or a tradescantia so it, that'll be amazing to be you know, from my, my initial plant to then see those plants in mass cultivation in people's homes, I think that'll be amazing to see. Well, I suppose with the demand being there, the growers are looking to pick plants like that to be able to have in their propagation room so they can then make lots of money and flood the market and eventually, like you say, they'll the whole marketplace will be... A, able to get these more rare plants but just thinking about the propagation yeah, exactly. uh, the propagation side of things a little bit tony if i mean my imagine uh, so my vision of a monstera is it grows these big long i don't say sort of br- uh, branches almost and then sends roots out what's mm-hmm. the easiest way to propagate them i mean presumably we're not talking leaf cuttings or we're talking sort of cutting up the stems are we or how, how would you go about yeah yeah so for monstera you have to have a node so the nodes are the bumps um where the leaf and um, where the petiole and then the, the petiole is a bit from the leaf to the stem yeah. um but you have to have a node so you have to cut the stem of your monstera to, for it to be a successful cutting so you'll probably cut an inch above and an inch below um a, a good node and then you can either root that. Some people go into water. I recommend just rooting it in whatever you're going to grow it in, finally, so you don't have to transition it to anything. Okay. Um, I usually root a lot of my stuff in sphagnum moss. That works terrifically well. But the key with it is to get it rooting as fast as possible before rot sets in. And rot loves cool, damp conditions. So we want it to be damp, but if you can counteract that, coolness and put it somewhere warm or put it in a prop box a propagation box which can literally just be 
a clear plastic storage container. That's what I use for all of my propagation. Um, it's basically a mini greenhouse. And if you can put that somewhere really warm, sort of 25 plus degrees, 25 to 30 degrees, if you can, okay. it'll root a lot faster and you'll get it going before any rot has a chance to set in. Ah, that's the secret. Mm. And do you need to use any sort of like hormone rooting powder or anything like that? Or is it literally just... I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I never really have. Um, sometimes if I do leaf cuttings of things like begonia, um, you they're so fine and they rot so quickly that sometimes I will use a bit of fungicide and then some rooting hormone on there as well just to get them going nice and quick. But very, very rarely. And things like Monstera, other aroids, um, and most other houseplants, they don't need it. They're, 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 they're so quick to root and so easy to root. So I'd suggest, um, suggest that you just don't need it. The other thing is, is um, to make your chances, uh, to make things root a little bit quicker or get established a little bit quicker, try and take a cutting that has an, uh, a root or an aerial root already, and that will make your life a lot easier. Yeah. And recently on YouTube, I've seen some little clips of people putting, I say, cuttings into potatoes and then slice <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any of these? And does it work? Oh, I've seen all of these. No, it doesn't work. Please don't do this. Um, so the great thing, we love social media. That's how I've created my entire brand, my entire new career is being based on social media. So I love it. But social media has a dark side as well. <laughs> and uh, when you say dark, I mean, it's it's yeah. and potatoes, so it's not that. Um, <laughs> but... What happens is someone creates, it tends to be these huge accounts that create these hacks, and they do hacks about lots of different things in life. Yeah. And none of them work, and, and, a, and a big proportion of people watching them know they don't work, and they'll comment on saying that this is trash, this is garbage, this doesn't work. That <laughs> engagement then pushes the post to be seen by more people, mm-hmm. and, and Instagram favors negative activity. So these posts tend to reach more people than anyone giving good advice. So then you have people sticking plants in potatoes, but it, please, it doesn't work. None of the homemade fertilizers work for houseplants. They're just, just Rubbish. You'll, you'll encounter so many problems. If you, if you see people making banana tea or tea bag tea, or what was the, the worst one recently was um, it's become a real big trend to, I hope you've had your breakfast. Yep. to use um, used sanitary pads and use the blood to create a fertilizer for your plant. Wow. Um, it's a bit unhygienic, <laughs> isn't it? So, yeah, I'll stick to fish, blood and bone, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is, if, if some of these things work, great, but it doesn't work and, and you're actually just increasing the likelihood of rot and anaerobic um, bacteria in your plants and mm. you're also increasing the risk of fungus gnats but yeah all the, the vast majority of these hacks that you see online do not work okay Tony on, on, on the, the the other area of propagation propagating plants in water is there any plants you've come across which you know actually enjoy that sort of uh, method and, and get you get good results from um, 
short answer no um it's more about it's more about people like if you don't have time and maybe you enjoy seeing the roots grow and it helps you learn and i think water propagation is great for kids because they can see the root development of plants and i think that's really fascinating um if you're if a if a cutting is very woody or very old they usually take a lot longer to root um and by that point the the plant might not be taking up enough water Mm -hmm. from a substrate mix for instance so sometimes just to get things going sticking them in water is okay but if you're wanting to transition it and grow it in soil as soon as that new root starts growing don't wait until it's an inch two inches three inches long as soon as it starts growing get it into soil and just get it really warm and humid in a box and it'll take off um leaving a plant in water too long and then if you try and transition it into soil, the roots it's created in the water will rot when you put them into soil. Mm, yeah. The plant might still grow, but it's having to produce new roots. So for me, you're sort of taking a very long route around to get to the same place of growing it in soil. Yeah. That's... So if you can, I'd suggest just, just getting it straight into whatever you're going to want to grow it in finally. Um, I mean, recently, and this was learned from a fantastic grower in the Netherlands, he grows everything in rock wool cubes that I've never seen before. I've, I've tried growing a rock wool before and with, with disastrous results. But these uh, rock wool cubes act like, like substrate, like a soil. They hold water, but they keep the roots fairly dry because they absorb the water and keep it away. And, and I'm having terrific results rooting into that, really great results rooting into that. But the key with whatever you use is heat and humidity. Perfect. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you, Tony. Excellent. So the Gardener's World appearance, you, you've appeared on the television, haven't you? You, you made an appearance on the, the show that you used to watch with your nana. That, that must have been quite an exciting time in your life. How did that come about and happen? Oh, it was unbelievable. I never, never thought, although my, my aunt and my nana used to always say when I was a kid, you'll be on there when you're older, <laughs> which was always really weird. And that sort of disappeared, obviously, going through life because, um, well, life happens. And, yeah. and, and also, horticulture was never mentioned in school and plants in general as a possible career. So you just think, oh, that's not something I could possibly do. You know, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm not. I don't have lots of money and I don't have a big garden and my parents don't either. So that's never going to happen. So I'll just carry on sort of pottering on on my own, do my own thing. Um, and it was because of the greenhouse inside, a local BBC radio came and did a video. And from that, it ended up spreading through all the national press and then, then randomly gone as well, just, just called me. Um, and I think I pretended I was busy at first because I was very... <laughs> It's really shy. I was like, I'm really busy. I'll call you back. Because <laughs> I was like, what? What is happening? I need to compose myself. Um, and then, yeah, we. It, it was a funny old time because it was still, it was still COVID when we filmed um, towards the end of it. And initially they said, look, we want to get you on. Um, can we send you the cameras and we'll control them all from, from, you know, studios away wow. and we'll direct you and you'll be there. And I said, no, honestly, <laughs> let, I, I, I said, I said, look, this is really special to me. Like it, it really is. So let's, let's just wait. 
and let's do it in the future when we can be together and do things properly. Um, it was still very weird. We had a really small team and, and everything was very last minute. Right. I'd love to, to get the opportunity to do it again. But I had a fantastic time and the team were amazing and um, the feedback from it was, was really great. And from that, um, I, think, I think that's where DK, Dawkins Kinsley um, Publishers saw me first. And then they followed me for a while, and then um, and then um, I got a, got a call to 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 write a book. So, yeah, because you've got a yeah, new book coming out, haven't you? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a book coming out. It's just um, I finished it earlier this year. Right. Um, that was that was intense. First, obviously, first ever book, and again, something I never thought I'd ever be doing. Um, and it's just available now. It's just gone on to Amazon for pre-order. It's in Waterstones, it's in um, WH Smith, all, all, all book retailers, and it's available at pre-order. It comes out in April, though. Um, and that is uh, comprehensive plant care, so it's really teaching you not, it's not just telling you what to do, it's telling you why you're doing it, what your plant is doing, and, and, and sort of how to work with your plant and how to get the best success out of growing. Brilliant. Ask us. So no, our listeners can look out for comprehensive plant care by you. Is that that's right? Yeah. So the name is the name is not another jungle, and then ah. the text is comprehensive plant care for extraordinary plants. So it does focus on rarer plants, and it does features really beautiful photography in there by Jason Ingram um, of of just really beautiful, rare, unusual plants. But the plant care that you get. You can transfer that onto any of your house plants, and that's going to really help you understand your plants and, and grow really well. Fantastic. We'll look out for that one then. And I guess the other side of healthy plants is sickly plants, isn't it? And I guess <laughs> composts and pests and diseases. I mean, obviously, we talked about fung- uh, um, fungus, gnats. Yeah. fungus gnats and compost um, that. The, the the fungus gnats live in the compost, do they? Or what, what sort of compost would you sort of be looking to plant your house plants in? Because we're going peat-free, which I think is a great idea. But what what's the best alternatives now for house plants? So it's really difficult. And what I use is probably not going to be suitable for everyone. So I use a I use a sheep's wool based compost. So I went peat-free um, a little while ago with with the house plants. Yep. And then, um, I don't know, maybe eight months ago when coir free, because coir is the alternative for peat. But in my opinion, it's actually worse for the environment. Um, and it's, and it's, it's from Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, where we have really biodiverse areas, which are just being cleared to grow coconuts to produce coir. Yep. Um, so, so I decided using to, the... to go coir free as well. So I use a, I use, it dale I use dale foot? foot yeah, I was going to say the dale foot yeah, one. That's the sheep foot. and bracken, isn't it? That's right. So what I do is I use the seed compost because it's a, got a little less nutrition in it. It's also got okay. some horticultural sand in. Yep. Fine, fine. And then I mix that with some of the bulb compost, which is just the shredded bracken. So that is basically your coir. Okay. Um, and then mm-hmm. all I do in that is mix in um, two different sizes of bark chips. Now, this is because I've got very big plants and most of them are aroids, so they've got big fleshy roots. If we're dealing with regular house plants, you don't need to go to as much effort as I do with that. Um, a good all-round peat-free houseplant compost is fine, but I definitely recommend adding in 
either some horticultural grit or some fine bark just to sort of open it up. And that's then going to um, benefit your plants. You're going to allow more oxygen and airflow to the roots, but it's also going to really help you and stop you overwatering your plants because it's going to drain and dry out a lot quicker. So that, that, that's what I would recommend. And quite honestly, when it comes to, um, to Dalefoot at the moment, um, I maybe wouldn't recommend it for everyone to use because it's got so many nutrients in it and it's not sterilized. You can get fungus gnats on it and like a lot of fungus gnats if you even slightly overwater. I don't right. get them because I keep my plants very, very, very dry. Yep. But you, you, if, if you're not experienced, I, I wouldn't use it yet. Um, hopefully I'm going to be working with, with peat-free um, compost maker and looking at how we can create something suitable for houseplants and suitable for everyone to use really easily. Um, so watch that space, I suppose. Excellent. And just for our listeners who are possibly venturing into different types of uh, pea-free compost, the, the fungus gnats, they're tiny little sort of, they're sort of clear colour, are they, or uh, white colour? They're, I can't they're, they're winged and they, they move around, don't they, uh, on, on top of the soil, and they lay yes. their eggs, is that correct, Tony? They lay their eggs in, in the compost? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So basically, for fungus gnats to, and people say how to get rid of fungus gnats, well, fun, the clue's in the name. They, they feed on fungus, or the larvae feed on fungus in the soil. The fungus can only grow when the soil is damp for long periods of time. So you tend to, if someone says, I've got fungus gnats, tends to mean you're overwatering your plants. Um, They have a life cycle, and I think it's about 23 days, but don't quote me on that, from laying to then hatching out into larvae, living in the soil, and then becoming adults. So if your soil is staying damp for that long, for the the fungus gnats to to go from egg to larvae to to adult and back again, it means you're overwatering your plants, and likely you're going to get some root rot as well. So they're good... But, you know, in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, they're actually a good little signal that there's something going wrong with your plant care. Um, mm-hmm. Now, they're not, unless they get to plague proportions, they're not going to do any damage to your plant, but they are highly annoying, especially at night when you've, you know, you're using your phone or you've got a light on and they just fly at your face <laughs> or into <laughs> your ears. Like, and they're, they're really irritating little, tiny little black flies. Okay. Um, and honestly, to get rid of them, just... Um, Stop watering. <laughs> if you're using a compost with a high organic content, that can, you know, that can increase them. And, and, and yeah, just stop watering your plants so much. And the general rule I give to people, they say, how often do I water my plant? Well, plants don't work on a schedule, but it's good to have a schedule. So check it once a week. But if it is damp and not completely dry, don't water it. So you can stick your finger in, but the easiest way to learn is just try and learn the weight of the pot, and your pot should feel very light when it's completely dry. Okay. And then you can water it. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? Yeah. And I guess yeah. with watering plants, and we talked very briefly earlier about possibly when you're cleaning the plants as well to give them some feed, how often do you think mm. we should be feeding plants and any sort of specific types of feed that we need to be using for houseplants? Yeah, so it's funny. In the garden, I'm completely, fully natural. Everything is completely natural, organic, everything. But it doesn't necessarily work very well inside because you don't have the mycorrhiza, you don't have the environment in the pot. A plant's roots don't absorb nutrients directly, really. Um, They have mycorrhiza, 
and then the mycorrhiza absorb the nutrients and make them accessible to the plant's roots. And if you don't have that then in the pot, which most houseplants don't, the mixes are very sterile. Um, and because you're allowing them to dry out, things don't get a chance to, to um, populate the soil. So inside, I think a synthetic fertilizer or a synthetic hybrid organic mix is, um, is best for sure. And that, that means the, the synthetic part is specifically designed so your plant can access it immediately. So you get instant benefits from it. And you can see it in your plants within a few days. If you haven't fed them in a while, they'll really start greening up. You'll probably get some new growth and, and, and your plants just look happier and healthier and are healthier because they've got all the nutrients they need. Um, it's definitely something people forget about. Um, as a general rule, I tell people there's about a month's worth of fertilizer in a new plant they're buying, you know, as a very generalized sort of rule. And after that, your plant will continue growing even for many years without fertilizer. But if you feed them, sometimes the difference in the growth is it looks like a different plant. You know, the leaves will get huge, they'll get fenestrations, and they'll have less problems with pests and disease because they're just stronger and more resilient. It's, it's just like us, you know, if we have a better, healthier, balanced diet, you're more resilient to getting a cold, a cough, the flu, whatever it may be. Um, mm. So I'd recommend then feeding wise, I recommend every other watering, okay. which means that the amount of food the plant is getting is in line with the amount of water it's using. And the amount of water it's using is usually in line with how much it's growing and then how much fertilizer it's going to need. Mm. So the more water it uses, the more fertilizer it gets because it's probably growing more because it's using more water. And then the opposite is, is obviously true as well. And just thinking, you're talking about mycorrhizae fungi. Um, obviously, we sell empathy root grow here at the garden center, which is just a, a mm. whole mix of that. Do you ever put anything, anything like that in your compost mix when you're repotting? So I have trialed it for sure. Um, but actually, for, for, the, for these tropical plants, um, the mycorrhizae available on the market, because each plant or each family or sometimes even just each plant itself um they're all specific, has a relationship they? with a specific type of mycorrhiza exactly so a yeah. rose mycorrhiza which is the most common one on the market is going to do pretty much nothing for a monstera okay. um i really thought about that because they're designed for yeah, they're, they're, sort of the the more hardwood sort of woody types of plants weren't they for landscapers and outdoor plants so yeah what you're yeah. saying makes total sense yeah, the, you know, in, in the tropics of South America, um, you're going to have a completely different range of mycorrhiza and even different localities. And like I say, different plants, specific plants, like a Monstera deliciosa might have a different relationship with a different mycorrhiza than a Monstera adansonii. So mm. that's why synthetic fertilizer just works really well. Now, I have a brand of fertilizer, um, Superfood, and that is a hybrid mix because Soil health is really important to me outside and inside. And because I do use an unsterilized compost, um, I use um, a hybrid mix of synthetic and natural because the, the natural part, um, the kelp, the seaweed, and some other things, humic, fulvic, that helps support the ecology in the pot because that's important to me. Now, is it something that someone with a couple of houseplants is going to be that worried about? No. 
Um, but just having that natural bit in there does help support the actual health and the structure of the soil, as well as the synthetic stuff that the plants can access straight away. Mm-hmm. Tony, I've sort of read somewhere that um, your success with plants is down to not becoming too obsessed with them. Um, uh, <laughs> which after chatting to you this morning this morning it's it's clear that you are very very keen and very passionate do you think we the british tend to obsess too much about our gardens and our plants well i think everyone does and especially in the especially with rarer plants or someone spent a little bit more money on something um they tend to just over fuss it you know I, i've sold plants before and then you know, they've been really healthy, great established plants and someone's like, oh, the roots are doing this, this is happening. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, how do you know that? Oh, I take it out of the pot and check its roots every few days just to make sure. Well, <laughs> every time you do that, you're damaging the, the roots, you're, you know, you're affecting the plant, you're, you're pushing its progress back by months every time you check its roots. So that's what's happening. Whereas if that was just a regular house plant, you buy it, you stick it on your windowsill and you let it get on with things and it's probably going to be much better for it mm-hmm. um i mean the other day i was posting i keep coming into my kitchen which is where i have most of my plants and i mean i've spent very little time at home i come home for about an hour and i go to bed and i get up in the morning and leave that's just how things mm-hmm. are and have been for the last year um so my plants at home get very very little care a water and a feed if they're lucky um and I realized that I hadn't watered my plants in about two months and things were starting to look a little bit, little bit more horizontal. <laughs> they were really, really not looking great. So the other night, watered them, gave them a feed, gave them a wipe down. And I came down the following morning and everything was back up looking absolutely gorgeous again. Mm. And it shows you how tough and resilient these plants are. And honestly, if we just leave them alone and learn about them, and learn about you know how much water they need or, or their specific needs. When you buy a plant, learn about where it grows in the wild, and then replicate that. It doesn't mean you know having a jungle floor, but it means okay, it grows on the side of a tree, which probably means that it's absolutely fine to dry out completely, and it'll be fine once you rehydrate it. Um, yeah, people just overfuss the plants, and and traditionally. When someone sees a yellow leaf or the plant isn't doing well, the one thing they do is just give it more water. And usually the problem in the first place was that it had too much water. Yeah. So you've just basically, you know, given it more of what was already causing the problem. You're just drowning it, yeah. So, Tony, we tend to put our expert guests on the spot. Um, so have you ever, if you were stranded on that, you know, virtual desert island, uh, which house plant, perhaps, or which plant would you like to be stranded with, and and why? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be practical about this, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna say something from the alocasia family because it grows really fast. Uh-huh. The leaves get huge, so you could use it for shelter, and you can eat the tubers. Oh, so I'm sorted. Mm. I'm surviving on that desert island. Perfect. <laughs> That's a great choice. <laughs> Good stuff. And have you got any jokes or funny stories you could share with us from your times in? Oh God! It's... <laughs> I mean, it's pretty endless. And since since uh, the shop, um, since the shop opened, there's something uh, something every day. But I'll share one. I had a guy come in the other day, and um, 
he was looking for a present for his girlfriend. Right. And he said, oh, what, what's this? This is really unusual. And it was a Stefania Erecta. Um, and he went, no. I said, yeah, what, why, why? And he was like, her name's Stephanie. I'm getting her that. And when she comes in, he went, can I pay for it? And when she comes in, will you just say that this is Stefania Erecta? Okay. So I just say this to this girl, and she was like, "You told me there was something, but I didn't realize it was that." And he was like, "She was like, he's like a bloody teenage boy." (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best thing. I I, I thought that was quite funny. That's not. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, customers do provide us with the best laughs. Oh yes, the best without a doubt. Um, So finally, our. Um, Tony, our Dig It listeners obviously want to find out about more more about you and your plants and your shop in Northampton. How, how do we uh, point them in your direction? So main place is Instagram. Uh, you can join Instagram, which is not another jungle. Um, the book is online if you go on Amazon, uh, which is also not another jungle. And uh, the shop is on George Row in Northampton, open seven days a week. So, um, And I'm in most of the time as well, so pop in. Yeah, it's a lovely good. shop, right opposite the church, bang in the town centre, isn't it? It's a great location it's, for it's, a it's, it's on my list to go and visit. I thoroughly recommend it, Chris. Yeah, it's yeah. a really nice place. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time today, Tony. It's been a great uh, great time to uh, chat with you. And we certainly learned so thank much on, on houseplants and uh, a lot of things which, uh, yeah, invaluable information. So thank you. Thank you once again. Uh, thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.